1: Thank you for tuning in to the Postmodern Realities Podcast from the Christian Research Institute and the Christian Research Journal. I'm Melanie Cogdill, Managing Editor of the Christian Research Journal. It's December 2020, and you're listening to Episode 215, which is a discussion about how to reach those in the Gen Z generation for Christ. On this episode, I'm joined by Kyle A. Keating, who has an MDiv and serves as dean and teaches history, theology, and apologetics at Providence Classical Christian Academy in St. Louis. He has written for the online magazine Christ and Pop Culture and Mare Orthodoxy. Kyle has written an article for our Effective Evangelism column in the upcoming Volume 43, Number 3 issue of the Christian Research Journal, and his feature article is called Planting Seeds of Faith, Making the Christian Story Plausible and Desirable to Generation Z. And you can read his article when you subscribe to the journal at Equip.org. Kyle, it's good to have you on. Good to be back. Well, as I mentioned in introduction, that this is an article about evangelism as we consider younger generations, specifically Gen Z. And, you know, before there was a lot of talk about millennials, but a lot of millennials are reaching 40 now. So they're not really the youngest generation. And I'm concerned about this particular topic because I'm the mom of two Gen Z kids. So just for some of our listeners who might not be as familiar with this generation as the millennials, why don't you tell us a little bit about Gen Z and what makes them different from other generations like Gen X and specific, you know, boomers might be their grandparents and even uh, millennials, how are they different?
0: Yeah, I mean, when we're talking about Gen Z, we're talking about a generation that begins somewhere in the mid to late 90s, depending on who you listen to in terms of setting apart the that generation as a whole. And so when you think about what that means is even if they were born on the earlier end of that, like 1994, 1995, they're growing up, uh, most of their years growing up and certainly their adolescence is after the Internet is, you know, pretty ubiquitous and and a, a pretty normal part of our lives and and especially what you start to see is that gen z is characterized by growing up in the smartphone age so maybe some of the uh, the oldest people in gen z don't get smart, didn't get smartphones or didn't grow up with smartphones on the front end of adolescence but really when we think about gen z we're thinking about a a very digitally savvy generation even even more so than the millennial generation um and, and that a lot of this savviness, it takes place on smartphones. And so they might a- actually be as digitally savvy with respect to laptops and, and things like that, because they do most everything on their phones. Um, I'm, a, I'm a high school teacher. And uh, one of the things that, that I see my own students doing is that if they have an assignment they, they need to type up, some of them will type it up on their phones. Even my generation, millennials, that seems a little bit strange. But in Gen Z, that's that's par for the course. So, so obviously much, you know, very digitally literate, um, probably uh, more attached to their smartphones than, uh, or at least as attached to their smartphones as any other um, generation. Interestingly, one of the things that that m- means is that because they tend to spend more of their lives through digitally mediated platforms like social media, you know, Instagram, Snapchat. And and their smartphones, they're actually less likely, statistically speaking, to participate in behaviors that sociologists have, you know, sort of historically considered risky behaviors. So you think about premarital sex or pregnancy out of wed- wedlock. Um, drug use, uh, illicit drug use, these kind of things that are often associated with, hey, younger generations are probably are more likely to do these things. Gen Z actually comparatively is less likely to engage in a lot of those risky behaviors. And a lot of uh, sociologists uh, think that this is because so much of Gen Z's relationships are online, whether it's via online gaming or social media, that they're just less, they, they, they generally speaking, participate in less social interactions that are in person. And so a lot of these sort of defined as risky behaviors that would require sort of an in-person presence are on the decline. Now, there's a lot of sort of flip side negatives to that as well, right? So obviously, the more your relationships are digitally mediated, the less sort of in-person connection you're able to have, the less likely Gen Z is to invest in in in-person relationships compared to previous generations. And then you have the sort of flip sides of, okay, there are certain risky behaviors that Gen Z is actually sort of insulated from because they're more likely to live digitally mediated lives. But then there are other risks that they incur at a much higher rate because of that. We'll probably talk more about some of those risks, but there are sort of some some obvious ones like pornography use is far more, is much higher among Gen Z because they've got phones in their pockets and they have the internet in their pocket anywhere they want to go. Other sort of risky or dangerous behaviors like sexting or, you know, we see online bullying, those, those kind of things are, are the sort of negative flip side to have living digitally mediated lives. And I'd say that's probably the the biggest, most obvious characteristic of Gen Z compared to other generations.
1: And it does seem like they're primary interactions being online, whether these are Christian students or non-Christian students or non-religious students in their generation, it seems like I read some articles somewhere, and I think it's very true of at least my kids, that there's just not a desire for them, for example, to get their driver's license. So they aren't going to do those risky behaviors because they don't have a license. They're not going out and meeting up with a group of friends. They're just meeting up with their friends online, like you said, to do gaming or other things, social media.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. There's there's this weird sort of stunting of some of the normal rites of passage of adulthood um, that come a little bit later as a result of just not needing the independence of going to get a car because you can access all of the communities and whatnot that you want to, you know, in your room via your pocket or whatever. Um, so it is really interesting that that in some ways there are there there's an a delayed maturity that has happened as a result of that too.
1: And it's not, and it's not just my kids. It's other kids or friends that I've talked to. M- many of them, and these are boys, don't even have a desire to get a driver's license. I mean, my oldest son didn't get a driver's license to college. He wasn't interested in it, and it seems like even some of uh, the friends of my younger son is similar. They're just like, yeah, I'm not really wanting to get my hours for my driver's license. You know those kinds of things. So it is kind of this delayed where. Don't. Most teenage boys want to get a driver's license, but maybe not so much anymore. So those some, some of these things that are delayed or some of these things that are unique about their generation, does that also apply to religion? In other words, are they less religious or more religious, or are there fewer Christian kids that are Gen Z than past generations?
0: Yeah, it's interesting. So, so it depends on the studies that you look at. Barner released a study that sort of did some comparative work on the various generations, and what they were really looking at is looking at those generations at the same time and saying, hey, how religious is Gen Z now relative to these other generations now? And one of the things that they saw was that Gen Z was you know, far more likely to be atheist than other generations. Now, that that may just be because they're the youngest of the generations, and it's always the youngest generation that's that in that age group is most likely to be atheist. But I do think studies like that are significant in terms of showing us that you know, Gen Z is the sort of immediate plausibility of Christianity is more likely to be questioned by Gen Z than any other generation, that there's this sense of, you know, one, questioning this sort of epistemological, like, are we even able to understand and know what truth is? How do we know it's true? And is what's true for you true for me? Those are sort of fundamental questions that have, you know, bubbled below the surface for some time. But I think with Gen Z, those are kind of the waters that they swim in quite a bit. And then beyond that, this this sort of increased, you know, sense that atheism is a, is a, is a plausible and maybe even, you know, more likely answer than other religious explanations for the world. And And so I think some of those trends have, you know, you can trace them Generationally, and you can look, you can go back historically and see, hey, some of these trends have been growing for some time in sort of the modern modern world and modern culture. And Gen Z is sort of just downstream of those those changes that have been happening for a while. But generally speaking, we say Gen Z is 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 generally less religious and more likely to be atheist. Um, But this doesn't mean that Gen Z sort of has uh, shut shut off all sort of religious thought. It's just they're, they're less likely to be religious in a way that is dogmatic or sectarian or, um, you know, is is permitted to tell other people that they're wrong about what they believe, if that makes sense.
1: One thing I thought our listeners might be interested in is last year in March 2019, the New York Times did kind of a, like a study, just talking to different Gen Z um, kids, and they interviewed 900 Students or kids in that age group. I don't know if they were all students, and you can go look it up on the New York Times, and it was really fascinating. I, nine hundred is a lot of people, so I couldn't get through through all of them, but just to hear what they were saying, most of them I would totally agree. I mean, it was just these small, you know, nine hundred is not everybody, but it's a lot of kids that they talked to, and just in their own words, they just had very different ideas about the world, about race, about gender, about religion than you would normally have heard in the past. So if anyone's interested to kind of see a sm- sampling of that generation, I recommend you look at it because um, it's very fascinating.
0: Yeah, you just get that that bit, that bit much wider range than maybe you would have in previous generations.
1: Yeah, for sure. And they're more diverse too, ethnically. So it was uh, really interesting to see how different people were growing up and what they thought on a number of topics. And they just kind of had to summar- summarize it in a short paragraph. Now, your article specifically is talking about evangelism to Gen Z students, which, you know, there might have been back in the day, you know, um, in maybe the 80s and even 90s, certain campus ministries would go into college campuses and just do random, you know, kind of surveys and try to do evangelism that way with just, you know, people that they didn't know. Those were some of the kind of methods that were used back then. So in your article, you specifically say that it's tempting to use generational research to develop these highly contextual approaches to evangelism that meet young people exactly where they are. And then you suggest that it isn't the best approach. Why is that? So would that kind of approach work? You know, have different methods of how you reach young people in the past? You know, it's changed now since some of those things that I mentioned, like the random surveys on college campuses. So do you think that there needs to be a different way in which Gen Z students are reached?
0: Yeah. I mean so the the, the first thing to say is like the all ministry is contextual all ministry is done in particular contexts and you should think about your context and all that's important. And that's true even of you know you think about you know people that are doing campus ministry or youth ministry today, right, who are you know directly in the the sort of the front lines of Trying to reach Gen Z for Christ, I think it's wise to do generational research to 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 understand. Hey, what are the characteristics of this generation? But I think the 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 criticism I'd offer is that there's there's a a, a way of doing that that leads you to this really highly contextualized approach that suggests that there's like some sort of secret key to reaching this generation that's different from every other generation. And oftentimes that key is described as relevance, right? You've got to find a way to make it relevant. What what can happen is if you have an overemphasis on relevance, you can end up kind of decorating a a veneer of Christianity that actually lacks substance underneath it. So you can end up doing all of this stuff to make uh, the Christian faith make sense to a context or to a generation or palatable to them. You know, and so this is where you get things like the youth group as rock concert, um, or as, you know, series of just sort of goofy games that never gets beyond that, right? Because what we're trying to do is entertain. And we know, hey, this generation loves their entertainment. They're on Netflix. They're on social media all the time. They they love entertainment. So what if can you know, can we compete with those sort of things? And the danger there is that one, you end up competing with things that you're going to lose to ultimately. So that's sort of one potential danger because you're just not going to be more entertaining than Netflix, right? That's that's a that's a losing battle, I think, for, for most youth pastors. But then the second thing is that what you do is you actually tell Gen Zers that, that that's what you have to offer them, is
1: that you're actually kind of... The- what if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At US Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders. From ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities, CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join US Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov/careers. Same as
0: Netflix or social media, you you what you have to offer them is some is entertainment and then when they confront the real difficulties of life the real trials the real questions their own real objections to the faith that's when the lack of substance the the hey we're really relevant doesn't actually answer those questions doesn't actually speak to them and so you know <laughs> i wrote an article about witnessing to gen z but i think one of the things that i one of the conclusions that i drew as i worked on the article is that witnessing to gen z isn't isn't fundamentally a different task than witnessing to any other generation that there are some things to be aware of um about gen z that will make you know certain approaches to witnessing make more sense um but it's not uh it's not like a different different game altogether it's the same game playing you know it's the it's the same task that 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 Christians have always been tasked with you know uh which is you know to to make disciples of all nations and baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit, right? It's it's the great commission work and uh and so it's good to know the context that you're doing that work in, but it don't let the context so change the work that you actually lose the the substance of what you're trying to say.
1: You're listening to the Postmodern Realities Podcast from the Christian Research Institute and the Christian Research Journal. Today's guest is Kyle Keating, who has written a feature article in our Effective Evangelism column in the Volume 43, Number 3 issue of the Christian Research Journal, print edition. And Kyle's article is called Planting Seeds of Faith, Making the Christian Story Plausible and Desirable to Generation Z. You can read this article when you subscribe to the journal at equip.org. Now, it's going to be Christmas in just a couple of days, and so I just wanted to take this time to tell you that... Myself, as well as the staff of the Christian Research Institute, are so thankful for all of our listeners and the ways in which you partner with us, whether it's leaving a rating or review on Apple Podcasts, giving us a a tip, or subscribing to the Christian Research Journal, sharing episodes on your social media accounts, or just simply telling a friend About this podcast. We're just so thankful for the ways in which you partner with us to help get this content out to others who'd be interested in these issues. And we're looking forward to 2021 when we're going to bring you more podcast episodes like we have been this year and we have been for the last four years to just help to equip you in your faith and help draw you deeper into a relationship with Christ and also to help you be a good member in your local congregation where you serve God, and also to use some of these issues that we talk about, whether it's cultural apologetics or the latest review of a television show or a film or a book, and these things that we can do that are springboards for you to have discussions about Christianity with your friends and family. So again, from all of us at the Christian Research Institute to you and your family, we wish you a very Merry Christmas. So I want to go to specific scripture passage that you talk about in your article. And you you use the metaphor of planting seeds drawn from Jesus' parable in Mark 4. So why do you think that this particular parable has a lot to teach us about evangelism in particular to Gen Z? Yeah.
0: <clears throat> so this was a, a a lesson that I learned from um, a professor of mine at uh, Covenant Seminary Mark Ryan. He he used this passage to sort of unpack the the way that um the evangelistic ministry often like we we, we can sort of think in our minds of the examples like like you gave Melanie of you know, this sort of cold, cold call evangelism where you just walk up to someone with a survey and, you know, you have your four spiritual laws and you've got this, this gospel tract and you go from, I've never met you before to, will you pray to receive Jesus in a 10 minute conversation? And I think one of the things that, uh, has become clear, especially, um, among millennials and, and probably even more Gen Z is that this is, this is just a, uh, Unlikely to be effective, broadly speaking. That's not to say that the Lord doesn't use it at times, um, but it means that that's not the most common way that um, that people end up in the church or end up believing in Christ. Um, And I think that makes sense because if you look at the parable uh, in Mark four about these seeds being planted and and us not knowing, hey, you know, the the planter plants the seeds in the earth and he doesn't know. you know what's happening underneath and he has to to trust that something is happening and that the seed will actually grow and Jesus is using this as this metaphor for the kingdom and i think it teaches us a couple things about evangelism one i think it teaches us that the kingdom kingdom growth is often slow and so it requires patience and sometimes evangelistic strategies emphasize this desire to push to a decision push to a point of you know, we need results. We need st- some statistics to report to people to show that our ministry is working. All that stuff works against this notion of patience, of planting the seed and then waiting. And and waiting And you know, the first, you know, when you plant seeds, you know, for, for the first t- several days, at least you're seeing nothing, right? There's this whole window of time where you've done work and you've seen zero results. Um, and that's, those are, you know, that's some of the hardest parts of ministry is when you've planted seeds and haven't seen any results. And so I think Jesus's parable encourages us to say, hey, that's okay. That doesn't mean you've done something wrong. Evangelistic ministry, witness, apologetics, these things require patience. They require a willingness to recognize that, that you may not see the fruit right away. And in fact, there might even be cases where you never see the fruit, where someone's faith journey involves you having a conversation at the front end that moves them just a little bit towards faith. But you don't see any of that, and it's not to, for for two or three more relationships later, until they get to the point where they're like, "Oh, actually, yeah, this really is plausible. This really is, you know, what I want to believe." And and you might not ever know that that happened later, right? You might have had this little role in a person's life that was just piquing their curiosity, um, and you saw no fruit of that. In fact, they didn't even show that they were that curious. But you did pique their curiosity because the next time they met a Christian, they asked. A different set of questions, or they asked some questions that they wouldn't have asked before, um, and so that—that's the first lesson: is that that uh, the, that faith grows often slowly, the kingdom grows slowly, and so it requires patience, and and that's hard because we want we want results. And then the second thing that it shows us is that that the growth of the kingdom is mysterious. Um, you know, there's there's this sense of like you plant the seed under the ground, and you don't actually get to see what's happening underneath there. And, uh, and and there's not always a clear formula for why you plant a bunch of seeds and some seeds grow and others don't. Now, there are things that you can do, right? You can water the seeds, you can weed the garden, right? There are all sorts of, you know, there are methods and techniques that you can apply that will create a better environment for the seeds to grow. But at the end of the day, you and I don't know why one seed decided to grow and another didn't when they were put in the same soil and given the same treatment, right? And so... The the other difficult thing this passage does is it pushes back against our desire for a formula or some sort of technique that if we just apply the technique right, it's going to produce results. And so Jesus's parable basically says, hey, in our results-oriented world that views evangelism, through this lens of statistics and you know how how many people have come to know Jesus, that that oftentimes what evangelism actually is is this slow, mysterious process where you invest the work, you're faithful to steward it, and uh, and you're patient and you wait. And none of that is uh, glamorous, and it's it's often very hard, and and sometimes can be really discouraging. But in in some sense, the encouragement is Jesus says yeah, but this is, this is what the kingdom's like. And so, um, so I think that's, that's one of the reasons why I find that, that, that parable particularly compelling as a picture of uh, evangelistic ministry.
1: So at the Christian Research Institute, and specifically the journal and its content focus, you know, one of our main focuses, of course, is apologetics, but also for decades, we have always had in our issues and a column Really focused on evangelism. We call it effective evangelism. So, in regards to what you were just saying, what do you see as the primary task of apologetics and evangelism? Specifically, is it different for Gen Z than it has been in the past? And, you know, what should we hope to accomplish with our relationships and conversations with non Christians in particular, but also? just in any Gen Z students or younger kids that we know.
0: So I don't think the task is fundamentally different. I think the task has always always sort of been the same. And it's to make the gospel and the Christian story of the world be two things, plausible on the one hand, and then desirable. And often we sort of think about, well, yeah, of course, apologetics, the plausible thing makes sense to us, right? Apologetics is about, you know, recognizing sort of objections and explaining Giving the reasons why those objections um, aren't aren't uh, ultimately persuasive, you know, sort of reasoning from worldviews and things like that, and so we're trying to demonstrate this is why the Christian faith is reasonable. This is why it is uh, supported by evidence. This is why it makes sense, right, in this sort of plausibility structure. Yeah, you know, I can I can see how that is coherent and makes sense as a way of. Um, thinking about life. And so that's that's you know obviously I think one of the tasks of apologetics and evangelism is to to make the Christian faith plausible especially in a culture where that plausibility is called into question uh, all the time. But the second piece is just as important and is probably the one that's more likely to be neglected in the sphere of apologetics and evangelism and that's the task of making the Christian faith desirable that it actually it has an attractiveness. It is. I can see why not just it's true, but it's also good and beautiful. And those other two pieces um, are just as important because the reality is, oftentimes um, someone might present a series of objections to to Christianity that are that present as highly rational objections. They're objections about the resurrection. They're objections about the creation narrative or something like that. See, so, see, so this sort of presents as, "Hey, I've got." reasons why I find it implausible. And those might be real objections, but oftentimes behind the surface is are these objections of the will, right? They're actually things about Christianity that I don't like or I don't want. Or other reasons why. You know, I, I grew up in the church and I was hurt by somebody in the church. I was betrayed by a church leader or, or someone in authority over me or something like that. And so all those things have made Christianity feel really undesirable, even independent of whatever rational objections one might have. And so, you know, I think a good apologist is recognizing that there are both of these things are at play. Yeah, you've got to give rational arguments to to show how Christianity can make sense, but at the same time you have to show especially Gen Zers why it's good because it, you know, and, and we'll, you know, there are a few different places where this is particularly hard for Gen Z to to buy. You know, probably the most significant is in the the area of uh, gender and sexuality where uh, the Christian view of things is is you know, often perceived as undesirable and limiting and even bigoted and, and those kind of things. And so demonstrating that the Christian worldview and Christian faith makes sense but is actually a good thing it's actually a good answer for um, and a beautiful answer for what your life could could be um, and what reality is is that's the second task and the one that sometimes is a little bit neglected.
1: But Gen Zers look at the world a lot more, I mean, very differently than past generations, because you were just talking about, well, there's some reasons or objections that people have. And recently, I was talking to someone definitely in the Gen Z generation, and they just don't look at truth statements with reason. I mean, a few years ago, the Oxford Dictionary's word of the year was post-truth, which is people determine truth based on emotion. And I would say that that's really how this person thought, You know, I determine especially things that they would consider are like, you know, they would say science is fact, but these other things that are like, you know, spirituality or whatever, those aren't fact and how I would interact with them. They would think that how I interact with them depends on how I feel about those statements, whether or not, even if you could tell me that they're objectively true, I don't agree with them. So therefore they're not true. Or in my experience, You know, I I kind of was talking to this person and giving an example of how people in their experience might come up with something, maybe even a scientific thing that might be true, like, or even math, you know, two plus two equals four. But then if you had really bad experiences with math teachers over the years, you might reject that based on your experience yourself with that particular thing. So how should people really think about even at a very basic level, when you get to some of these spirituality questions where the general Zer is approaching it in a post-truth emotional fashion, kind of like almost like a trigger warning kind of thing. Like it's a trigger for them that you're talking to them about this. How do we kind of overcome the, that barrier, that difference?
0: Yeah. And I, I think it's not by saying, hey, you shouldn't care about your emotions so much. You should just care about reasonable arguments. I mean, that, that may be true as far as it goes, but I don't know that that's sort of an effective uh, retort in that moment. I think that actually one of the first steps is showing, hey, even on your terms, even on your terms of like, you know, emotional plausibility or, um, you know, what you value as opposed to what you think is true, that there are reasons why Christianity is actually emotionally plausible, emotionally defensible, that there are reasons why, you know, its values actually make sense, not just because they're true, but because they actually offer a, a beautiful picture of reality. You know, I think, and our culture sort of like buys this in, in bits and pieces, like with the Christian sexual ethic, by and large, our culture you know, Punted, you know, almost all the major sort of core tenets of it. But then, you know, someone will post on social media about their grandparents who are celebrating their 50th anniversary, and everyone will be like, "That's amazing! That's beautiful! What an an amazing picture!" And it's sort of like, you know, there's not even an awareness of like, oh, that might actually be intention with that other value that you say you have—that is, hey, you should only stick around with a person as long as you like them, and once they stop making you happy, you should find someone else who makes you happy, like. Obviously, if that couple had done that, they wouldn't be celebrating their 50th anniversary. And you think, yet you think that's beautiful, right? Those are the kind of tensions that I think with this generation we have to push into. And that's 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 a, that's a emotion in in one sense. That's a sort of emotional and valuated argument more than it is about like what is true and not true. It's sort of like conveying, hey, that thing that you think is beautiful. Why do you think it's beautiful? And really helping them recognize, oh, may, maybe some aspects of what you believe. Um, are actually in conflict with that, that vision of beauty that you think is, is, is desirable.
1: So I want to ask you specifically now about, you know, how Gen Zers would grow in their faith for the ones that do become Christians or um, accept Christ, you know? So what are some of the attributes, I guess, of the type of faith that takes root and produces growth, particularly in Gen Z kids?
0: Yeah. And I think, you know, in one sense, this is an important question. It sounds sort of like a discipleship question, but it's actually an evangelistic question too, because the kind of faith that you want to cultivate is also the same faith that you're trying to plant, right? You don't, you don't plant sort of one set of seed and then hope it turns into something else later. You're planting even in your, in your evangelistic conversations or relationships, the type of faith that you hope takes root. And so, you know, one way to talk about it would be to talk about these four characteristics. And of course, they all start with the, the letter R because uh, I have an MDiv and, you know, went to preaching school, uh, but uh, the, a faith that's that's rooted, relevant, resilient, and relational. So let me just unpack those each briefly. Um, so a faith that's rooted, what I, what I really mean here is a faith that has, uh, that's historically contextualized. So it's rooted in, hey, you know, Christians didn't just think of this didn't make, just make this stuff up, you know, 20 years ago, because we, you know, thought it sounded great, that this is actually a, a way of thinking about the world that goes back for, for millennia. And, uh, and, and obviously there are some in our sort of modern era that are really eager to dismiss everybody who's come before us because they had all sorts of problems, right? They would never pass by our current standard, current uh, culture standards of what you know is politically correct or appropriate but 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 the reality is there's so much uh knowledge and wisdom that's come from the many many generations that have come before us and so when we can show hey this belief that our culture says is crazy or doesn't make sense is actually a belief that is drawn from this way of thinking that spanned millennia because it actually does make sense it actually is coherent um you know that's that's one way i think that that, that um, that that faith can be um, sort of more 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 historically rooted and you see this a lot like you know I think evangelicals in general this is probably a general weak point uh, compared to p- potentially other traditions where we we're you know potentially inclined to really focus on um, the most recent questions and the most recent issues and what people lately have said about questions instead of saying hey what did you know, did people encounter this question before? And you know, what did you know? What did Augustine have to say about this? What did Aquinas have to say? You know, what did Calvin, Luther, all these all these people that were, you know, not just on sort of the sidelines of their, of the intellectual arguments of their day, they were in the middle of them. What did they have to say about these things? So historically rooted, and then also biblically rooted, right? So uh, a faith that grew that would take take root and grow would be one that is actually robustly biblical. It's not. That doesn't just have the occasional trappings of the Bible, but it has a coherent understanding of the biblical story, you know, from Genesis to Revelation, creation, fall, redemption, consummation, the whole arc of the story. There's a sense of, I understand not just these sort of individual doctrines, but I understand how it all fits together. And I think that kind of faith that understands how the Bible all fits together on the one hand and and understands how that faith is rooted in a long history you know, we to talk more about this, but but because I've already sort of poo pooed being relevant as a bad thing, but I actually think it is important that uh, that the faith that we cultivate in Gen Zers is relevant and particularly relevant to the kind of questions they're asking. What I ultimately mean by this is that they we have to show that our faith has answers to the questions of our day and the issues of our day and the the, the deep anxieties of our cultural moment. So it is relevant to our cur- current moment, and it's not relevant to our current moment because we have changed it to be relevant. It's because it actually tells, uh, it actually has truths and answers that, that speak to every time and place. Uh, resilient means that uh, it's actually able to endure the very various trials and temptations and difficulties that we face. And and so, you know, the, there's there's a couple different ways that, that can be cultivated, but but really ultimately it's this idea that you it's a faith that hasn't been shielded from opposing arguments or opposing ideas. It's a faith that's been exposed to those and uh, has encountered those and, and been offered, you know, helpful explanations. And then lastly, it's relational. So it's uh, a faith that's, that's connected, uh, interconnected with other people and, and communities. And obviously at its core, this, this sort of core community would be the church. And, and I think that that's, you know, you talk about Gen Z being inclined to do everything mediated by digital relationships. People's faith is most likely to last, right? People who get beyond digitally mediated community into real one-on-one, face-to-face, in-the-flesh uh, community. Um, and obviously, like in the middle of a pandemic and this moment that we find ourselves in, this is a particularly hard piece because so much of our lives is is currently digitally mediated because of the situation we find ourselves in. But the fact that we all find that kind of dissatisfying tells you everything you need to know about, you know, how deeply we need relational connection to.
1: Well, I want to go back and unpack some of these R's that you gave us. And the first R that you had mentioned was rooted faith. So when, I, I just want to hear an example of when having this historically rooted faith might be particularly important to Gen Z students, because for them, I mean, everything is so instant on social media. It's like something that you posted yesterday is so irrelevant. I mean, like so much news has happened, even in your own social circle between in a 24-hour period. And, you know, if you read any articles on some of these Gen Z influencers that, you know, even live in, in houses together, it's always trying to find the new thing in a constant stream. So this idea of something being historically rooted might be even foreign to them.
0: Yeah, this is one of those moments where you're like, doesn't this sound like the opposite of contextualizing to Gen Z? Because isn't isn't the thing with Gen Z that they're not rooted? Uh, and the answer is like, yes, it is true that Gen Z is one of Gen Z's weaknesses is that they're not rooted. But the answer to that is not ultimately to say, well, okay, then we've got to you know, find, find our own influencer that can sort of capture their attention, but to actually show them that that rootlessness is a problem that, and and again, I think it's one of those things that like, you know, in, in some ways we, you know, we assume, oh, our students don't really get that. But when, when I talk to my students, I think they actually do realize that, that living your life via social media and having everything, having everything revolve around the latest meme and, um, the latest bit of of news or the latest Twitter trend, like that 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 there's a sort of chasing after the wind of that because that's always gonna change and it's always gonna move faster than you can keep up with it uh, and so so I think the 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 argument that I would make is that rather than competing with that, we actually have to show that um that 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 is a chasing after the wind that ultimately um, there's building your life around. You know, relationships that are on social media or uh, keeping up with whatever the the latest uh, internet thing is 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 um, is a sort of exercise in exhaustion and futility, um, and that there's something better and and uh, that provides sort of a, a a greater stability, right? But that that's sort of like, hey, this isn't going to change tomorrow. This is mm-hmm. a thing that's true today because it's been true for millennia you know Uh, and so this is one of those places where it's actually essentially a pushback on our on our where the direction our culture is going and so I think that's the you asked for an example I think that's sort of the example is hey our culture says uh, you know that that to the the kind of faith that might you know the kind of the way you should think about the world is best found by you know finding that on in social media and through these digitally mediated relationships. And I think we say, actually no. Like that's so unstable and it's going to change. And the thing that you the, the thing you were a part of before that was giving you meaning and value tomorrow might be uh, you know on the sidelines and, and completely unimportant. Or that thing that got you a thousand retweets and followers yesterday, tomorrow nobody's even thinking about it. You know? And so saying, hey, like you you got, you have to find something that provides meaning and value that's not changing every single day.
1: So you also one of the R's you talked about was being relevant, and you also said that we don't need to te- you know be relevant culturally in order for our the message, the truth of the gospel, to make a difference. And of course, there's probably a lot of examples out there of attempts by Christians and churches to be relevant. That either come across as like you know ridiculous and comical or maybe not substantial or even propaganda, I think one of the examples that you mentioned in just in passing in your article was you know Christianizing movies movies with a specific evangelistic focus that ends up not having the heft of real artwork that Christians develop like say on the level of Tolkien or c s Lewis or something like that so why don't you unpack for us what what does that, what is it to be relevant if it's not to just slap a Christian thing onto music or something else or social media, like a Christian social media, Twitter or something like that. So what, what would be relevant for this generation?
0: Yeah, I think, I think of things like, Hey, what are the hot button issues that Gen Zers care about? And one of the most significant ones when you look at, you know, Sort of the the data is that social uh, that sorry Gen Z care about social justice that that's a an issue of great importance to them and and the church has had all sorts of reactions to that right there's been you know there are some within the church that, that see that desire to uh, ask questions about social justice as a, a potential threat to the gospel then you have others who say yeah this is the this is the thing that the church needs to be about. And so, I think social justice is a, a good example of the kind of question that Gen Zers are asking and saying, "Church, what kind of answer do you have to questions of injustice? Do you have an answer? Is your answer, ah, that's not what the Bible's really about? Um, is your answer that's the only thing the Bible's about? You know, um, and 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 I, we can start to think through. Okay, there's there's an answer in between those. There's an answer that recognizes the Bible cares deeply about." justice and about the justice of the marginalized and oppressed. And we see this all over the place throughout the Bible in the Old Testament and New Testament. I mean, you can't read um, the major and minor prophets without running into this theme again and again. And so so the Bible actually does have a ton to say about what justice looks like. Um, but it's also not the same thing that the culture always has to say about what justice looks like. And so it's really important in a in a with, with questions that come from that, to that, that sort of vein of concern of, Hey, does, does Christianity have anything to say about social justice uh, to say? Yeah, it does. Um, and sometimes the things it has to say uh, line up with some of the, the uh, positions that are out there. And sometimes it doesn't, sometimes it's offering pushback on some of those issues. And so, um, and obviously that's its own, we could, we could spend two hours talking about just that question alone. But I think I I mostly bring it up as an example of what relevance means. Relevance means, hey, does the Bible actually speak to the issues of today and the questions that I care about? And I think it's really important for us to say, yeah, it does.
1: And one of the other R's that you mentioned is being resilient. And I think we think of resilience, you know, maybe as a concept that was true of, The World War II generation, or the boomers, or something like that, where they survived these odds, you know, in battle or something, and they were, you know, just stoic. And I think sometimes for this generation, if you just said, well, just suck it up and go ahead and, you know, get through this, that doesn't really resonate with them. Because one of the things that you brought up in your article is that some of the struggles that they have that might be different than previous generations there's a lot of anxiety. And I think this is true because at our um, my kids go to a private school and it, all the seminars for parents literally are about how to help children that have anxiety or there's a lot of pressure or they feel overwhelmed. And so in past generations, I don't know if they would have seen the amount of schoolwork or the things that they did to be anxiety causing. I think past generations would just say, well, yeah, we just, we just sucked it up and we did it. We just got it done. Like, why are you overwhelmed? You know, those kinds of things. So how does um, a resilient faith really um, have compassion towards these particular struggles and weaknesses that the Gen Z um, kids face?
0: Yeah, it's it's a great question. I mean, when you think about Gen Z, one of the first things that sociologists talk about is are these mental health questions and mental health issues that are um, particular concerns of Gen Z. Think about anxiety and depression as two of the the leading issues that uh, that are dealt with, especially by Gen Z adolescents. And, and your own experience with your your uh, children's school resonates with my own ex- with my experience at our school and what I'm hearing from uh, lots of, of educators and and and. Youth pastors that are involved in working with adolescents is that anxiety and and even depression are are often often feel par for the course, and sometimes that can make us feel like, well, does it is it real then? If everybody's dealing with it, is this or is this really just the same thing everyone's always dealt with, and this generation just happens to be sort of particularly fragile? So, I think there is kind of two potential ditches that we could fall into here. In the what what does resilience mean? We could fall into the ditch that I think you know. Um, maybe our sort of uh, mainstream culture is more likely to fall into, which is this sort of hyper-victimization, which treats every person as though they're incredibly fragile and that even hearing a contrary idea might throw them into um, this unresolvable, you know, um, bout of depression or anxiety. And so we've got to sort of wrap them in cotton wool and make sure that they're um, that they don't get hurt by ideas that might challenge them or make them think differently. Um, and so you think about a book like uh, Jonathan Haidt um, came out with a, a book he co-authored with uh, uh, another guy called The Coddling of the American Mind. And it was really, you know, this was one of the ideas that they explored is, hey, is, it, is this actually beneficial uh, to to this generation to to insulate them so much from ideas that might hurt them? And one of the things that they came away with is actually this exacerbates the problem that that if you if you try and insulate someone from anything that might cause them anxiety or cause them uh, some sort of you know disturbance emotional mental what you actually do is you prevent them from gaining any resilience at all because um, they've never actually had to encounter uh, opposing arguments and and anytime they do from then on out they treat it as this cataclysmic moment because they've been so insulated. And so you have that ditch that we want to avoid this sort of hyper hyper victimization that says, hey, we, we've got to protect you from anything that might cause you anxiety. Um, and then we have the other ditch, which is maybe a ditch that, that previous generations, and maybe when we go back to boomers or, or um, the greatest generation, you start to see some, you know, potentially falling into this ditch of like, well, actually, you just grin and bear it, right? So suppression and pretense are the way to get through the hard things of life, right? And this is this is a, an equally problematic ditch, I think, to the hyper victimization because it it actually avoids. It's a fundamentally an avoidance mechanism in the same way that 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 uh, this hyper fragility is an avoidance mechanism. They both actually avoid work moving into the things that are causing. uh you know, mental hardship or pain, right, that are causing anxiety. One suppresses them and says, hey, put on that happy face. Don't act like anything's wrong. The other says, don't let yourself get anywhere where those kind of things could hurt you or affect you. And and both of those err because they they, they ultimately both avoid the reality of pain and difficulty. And, and life in a fallen world means that you can't actually do that. You can't ultimately avoid pain and suffering and trial and so a faith that's resilient is one that that doesn't doesn't try to avoid um, the, the hard realities of life in a fallen world uh, it doesn't try to, to avoid them by insulating people from ever experiencing them and it doesn't try and avoid them by pretending they don't exist it says it names them it says yes you know anxiety and depression are like particularly critical issues for Gen Z why 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 is it that those are so prevalent? And what can we do to actually move um, move toward coming up with meaningful answers for um, for for students that are wrestling with those questions? What how can we what kind of interventions and how can we build resilience for students that are wrestling with those things? And I think that good you know good you know good counselors and therapists these are the kind of questions they're asking uh, because depression and anxiety are the the two most common things that you know, youth counselors are treating um, or encountering in their clients are um, are these are these mental health issues. And and it's more than, uh, and part of what one of the outcomes that um, many of the counselors I've talked to are pursuing is how do we build um, greater resilience and not a resilience that, again, pretends that these aren't issues or just as toughen up, toughen up, but rather that says, hey, these are real. What's causing these and how can we, you know, help you move through them and manage them?
1: Now you've mentioned in that your experience as a high school teacher, you know, one of the best predictors of whether students will continue to believe um, in Christ is whether in college is whether they get connected to a Christian community. And I know for my oldest, who's now a co- college graduate, so he's passed that, um, that was really something that I emphasized, like it is really important for you to be in church every Sunday and find a community. And it took him, he tried different communities and it took him till his junior year to really get connected to the Christian community where he could find guys. He was really looking for guys who were really serious about studying the word. And so that took him a while and it just really, his faith really took deep root and he just made church a priority. And so even if, you know, he was up on Saturday night till four in the morning, he would find himself himself uh, to church. He'd find his way to church every Sunday. And so why do you think that it, that, um, that's important for students that to, in order to really be rooted in their faith, as you were talking about having those roots, that they have Christian community when they get to college.
0: Yeah. I mean, in one sense, this is sort of human nature, right? It's hard to believe something alone. Um, And so it's human nature to shift our beliefs to conform to our communities, or to shift our communities to conform to our beliefs. Um, Because having those two things out of line, um, and uh, and inconsistent with one another is really difficult. And so, um, you know, I think that that's, that's the sort of fundamental human nature issue or question uh, that's at play there is that it's, it's hard to believe something alone. And and we do long for uh, people to um, uh, affirm what we believe or to find communities that do. So, so when we talk about like faith that lasts and faith that's rooted, it, it is, you know, especially, you know, th- this is true, whether you're going to a Christian college, a non-Christian college, any of those sort of contexts. Um, but, uh, but it's especially true, I think in a non-Christian context, anytime you're going to go out and try and say, Hey, I'm going to try and evangelize or, reach out to people who are different than me. It's really important that you're coming from a home base that can remind you of what is true and good and beautiful. Um, And so without that, you end up, you know, sort of prone to, you know, being blown by the currents, you know, the way Paul talks about is being blown by the winds of every doctrine, right? That you're, the less rooted you are both, you know, in the Bible and in in the history of the church, but especially in a community that's living and active today that can encourage you, uh, the more likely you are to be blown about by the winds of, of every doctrine. And especially in a, in a society that's increasingly post-Christian, those, uh, the, the winds of every doctrine are increasingly hostile to Christianity. And so, um, finding that community so, so central and, um, and in some ways it's more central than like how strong you think your faith is when you graduate is, is often what I find, um. And and again, that, that's, that's not surprising. And I, you know, um, a few years, every year I give my seniors uh, a different book when they graduate just as a sort of parting gift. And, And several years ago I gave, uh, Bonhoeffer's life together, um, to a senior class because I wanted to emphasize to them how important community would be to a faith that would last. Um, and that's one of the points Bonhoeffer makes is that, um, that faith is meant to be lived together and that so much of, uh, what makes a vibrant and um, uh, growing and maturing faith comes not from just us in isolation studying the Bible, but from being in community with one another, being discipled by others, having others that we're pouring into, um, kind of both directions there. And so, community is the, you know, obviously the the central piece to to all of that happening.
1: So, in our conversation today, we've talked about a lot of different facets of evangelism as a it- as regards to reaching Gen Z. But if there's just one thing you want our listeners to take away with, you know, how should evangelism with Gen Z be approached? What's that one thing?
0: Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, I think the, the sort of trick is that it, the, the one thing is that it would probably be that evangelism to Gen Z isn't a fundamentally different beast than evangelism to anyone else that, that it's, it's uh, you know, even as you, Do generational research and see, hey, they're digitally savvy and all these different pieces. That at the end of the day, evangelism with Gen Z involves like the proclamation of the gospel uh, to people, Um, and it involves doing that in contexts where you've uh, built relationships and have have uh, trust, and you have their trust, and uh, they believe that you're talking the things that you're telling them are things that you're telling them because you love them and care about them you know, and that's in one sense at the end of the day, that's true regardless of uh, generation. So I think that's kind of the, I don't know if that really answers the question, but uh, and maybe it sort of subverts the question a little bit. Um, but I do think that's the one thing, I'd you know, great, study Gen Z, do generational research, especially if you're doing youth ministry. But at the end of the, end of the day, don't lose that the core, the thing you're, you have to offer them is the same thing that you have to offer anybody. And it's ultimately the gospel.
1: Well, finally, I want to end with some fun rapid fire questions for Kyle. So it's Christmas next week. And so what is your favorite dessert at Christmas dinner?
0: Uh, My favorite dessert is uh, gingerbread cookies. It's a recipe that my aunt uh, always made every time we got together for family holidays. And so she's passed that recipe down to us. And um, every year during Christmas, we make these gingerbread cookies and ice them. And so that's, that's probably my go-to. That's the dessert I most associate with Christmas.
1: And what about Christmas gift lists? Do you make one for yourself or you the kind of person that makes a list that you give to your family and friends?
0: Yeah, I use a, you know, Amazon, make an Amazon list, then share it. That's, that's what we've, what we've done in our family. So, uh, yeah.
1: What's something that's on your list this
0: year? Ooh, lots of books, a, uh, a new Fitbit. Cause I smashed the face of my Fitbit of a few months ago and it sort of still works, but a new one would be nice.
1: Well, thanks Kyle for being on the postmodern realities podcast.
0: Thanks again, Melanie, for having me. It's always a, always a pleasure to to get to sit down and talk.
1: You've been listening to the Postmodern Realities Podcast from the Christian Research Institute and the Christian Research Journal. Today's guest has been Kyle A. Keating, who has written an article for our print edition of Volume 43, Number 3, in our Effective Evangelism column. And his feature article is called, Planting Seeds of Faith, Making the Christian Story Plausible and Desirable to Generation Z. You can read Kyle's article when you subscribe to the journal at equip.org. And Merry Christmas.